So, how you doing? It's been two nights. Did you watch the debates? Were you grimacing the whole time? Were you disappointed in what you saw? You heard? You felt as you were watching these candidates go up there? I don't want to talk about how I feel, but I will talk about what I've been hearing people say to me in the last few days watching these debates and just the emotional roller coaster that it's been for all of us. I've heard a lot of people say things like, oh, I only thought Biden could win and now he imploded and what does that mean that means we're going to get four more years of Donald Trump. Or I've heard people say things like, you know, Senator Harris was too aggressive or Senator Gillibrand was too over-talking or, you know, what was Marianne Williamson doing up on that? Actually, that was me who was saying about Marianne Williamson because she didn't belong there. Um, I feel like we all just got through this collective two-night stand together and we're all just kind of looking up and looking over next to us and being like, is that, is that what we, really? That? All right. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience, by the way, with this. So if you do, please explain to me what that feels like. Because I'm not entirely sure. I was never cool. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know what being cool is like. And that's why we're having this conversation about politics, of all things. Uh, this is, by the way, at the table, a, a conversation. I'm Jared Rizzi. After seven years of being a White House reporter, I decided to, uh, in the words of the real world, uh, start getting real. I, no? Is that is that a reference that anyone's going to get? No? No. I'm told that no one remembers that show. I genuinely have this moment where I am infuriated by people who have decided how things are or how things are going to be at this point. If you're talking to someone, if you're having a conversation about politics and they are absolutely sure based on the very small amount of information that we've got so far, run in the other direction because that person is not a smart human being. No one knows what's possible at this point. No one knows who can beat Donald Trump. No one knows what is going to matter to voters precisely in a year and a half, let alone in a few months when we get to the Iowa caucuses. People who pretend to know that certitude is entirely based on the apprehensiveness of being small-minded, and it is not our job to coddle the ignorant, to try to make them feel better, to try to make them feel happier about the fact that they're set in their ways and they want to get you to be set in your way too. If they're miserable, they're probably trying to make you upset too because misery loves company. And if they're a Biden fan and they're worried about him being a little bit underwater after some of the Harris uh, deluge last night, well, that's their problem and not yours. I don't know who's electable, and I think that word is loaded. I don't know who is going to be the nominee, 
and nobody else does either. But here's what I can tell you. I was heartened by the candidates who really seemed to have command over the last few days. I'm thinking the top tier, which includes Senators uh, Warren, Harris, Gillibrand. I think that also has to include Senator Sanders. I think Vice President Biden, surely on the momentum that he's brought into this race at this point. And I think everyone else is in a second category, frankly. Because they're coming up from a lack of knowledge about who they are. They've got a heavy road ahead. And I don't necessarily see them overtaking these very competent women who are in the United States Senate, are there for a reason. And each brings a, a perspective, frankly, that uh, is, is different from the 70-something men, white men, who have a message. It's, it's a very strong message, very different messages. I was talking last night about this and saying, you know, Biden's got this, uh, I can get people to come together, and Bernie's got this, uh, Sanders has got this, oh, I've got the guts that it's going to take to actually make some real change out there. And those are good messages. I was still the most impressed in terms of where my expectations were and how they were exceeded by Senator Harris over everybody else in the field. Not because my expectations of her were, were low by any stretch. Just because I really felt something when I saw her take command of that stage. There was a moment in the second debate where a lot of candidates were over-talking each other. Hers was the voice that cut through. I'd be interested to see her do that to Donald Trump. I also said this last night, but I want to say it again. We know what kind of candidate works well in a format that demands bumper stickers, fast slogans, easy-to-remember nonsense, and that is the person who's in the White House right now. That's not the kind of careful, reasoned discussion that you're going to get in this debate format. And in a few minutes, we'll have a conversation with Emily Holden. She's an environment reporter at The Guardian, and we'll talk about one of the issues that got supreme short shrift in the last two nights of debate, which was climate crisis. I want to make sure that there's a little bit more oxygen being given to the carbon dioxide problem we've got on this planet. And methane problem, as Governor Hickenlooper was so happily adding to the conversation. But maybe you're not upset about climate change. Maybe you're upset about some other issues that didn't get the attention you thought they deserved. And frankly, we know that no issue is going to get the attention it deserves in this kind of format. There was one candidate said something that struck me, and that was Andrew Yang, a tech executive who's been trying to make as much of a splash as possible on these debate stages. So crowded, so difficult to do. But he said at one point that it is difficult to focus on climate change when we've still got a boot on our neck. That's a, that's a paraphrase. He actually said it much more eloquently than I did. I feel that because when you are struggling – when you have stuff in your own life that makes it impossible to look ahead, I know that feeling. 
when you're you're too anxious to really make a good choice, when you're thinking about things in your life that aren't going so well and you can't get excited about the changes you know you need to make. He spoke to something real there, something we shouldn't forget about, which is that these are not just pocketbook issues. When politicians talk about them that way, it never lands. But he said it right because you have these moments where you can't make decisions from a position of strength. That's real for people. As a country, we need to get past this point where we have that boot on our neck. I don't know if his plan, universal basic income, is the way to go, but I will say this. Acknowledging that is part of what's going to make Donald Trump less electable in 2020. This process has begun, and I'm heartened for two reasons. One, I am an effervescent creature full of hope. And two, I thought we saw some damn good performances over the last few days that actually showed me not just policy. We didn't get a lot of policy, but there was some. But also the style, the heart the substance that can take down the kind of politics that has been winning for the last few years in America. That gave me a lot of hope. And I hope that you will continue to join me at the table where we can talk about this, we can share what makes us better, we can filter out what makes us worse, and we can all look next to us in the morning and be a little bit happier about what's there. This is At the Table. I'm Jared Rizzi, your host. Glad to be with you having a conversation about the Democratic debates. For the last few days, we've been paying attention. For many people, this is the first real check-in on where the candidates stand, what their positions are, and how we can think about them and and really what we can get excited about moving forward. This is the very beginning of the official campaign for a lot of these candidates even though we're still months away from the first votes in Iowa. I want to add to the conversation Emily Holden, who's an environmental reporter at The Guardian, environment reporter at The Guardian. Emily, you've been watching the debates for the last few days, along with me and several other very um, misplaced human beings who didn't have anything better to do over the past few days. What did people learn about climate change, if anything, that they didn't already know? I think that people already concerned about climate change probably learned very little during the debates. But I would say that I think that we're seeing it considered more of a top-tier political issue. And I also think that the urgency of the threat is finally being communicated. You heard Senator Harris call the crisis an existential threat to us as a species. Senator Sanders said the future of the planet rests on the U.S. fighting climate change. John Hickenlooper even noted that you know humans have a, a less than 10 years to essentially stem irreversible damage to the planet. But we didn't really hear much of anything at all about what the candidates would want to do about climate change, how quickly they would do it, how they would prioritize it, or how they differentiate themselves on this issue from one another. We've seen white papers from some of the candidates, not nearly all the candidates, position papers about what they would do from your coverage before the debates and what you've learned over the past few days. Was there anything that popped out at you as something new, something interesting, something newsworthy from these last two nights? I don't think so from the policy perspective. 
But I think when you're watching debates on an issue like this, what you really want to hear from the candidates and see from the candidates is how serious are they and how passionate are they about the issue and also how fluent are they on it. So what was missing, I think, for a lot of people who follow the climate crisis very closely was the understanding that this is something that is really already touching every part of American life and will continue to. And it is going to have to be part of every economic plan, every health care plan, et cetera, et cetera. It's something that should factor into really all of the questions that Democrats are getting in the debates and, and shouldn't be sort of an add-on. This was, you know, 80 minutes into each of the debates before we even reach the questions about climate change. You mentioned emotion, and this is something that I've been talking a lot about at the table as something that can really animate people. I was very heartened by the difference between the two nights. I thought, especially on the second night, we saw a lot more appeals to emotion. Maybe some of that was the fact that they saw the format. Uh, candidates had a better chance to maybe prepare some emotional anecdotes. But I was I was wondering, we saw a few more facts and figures, I thought, in the first night, perhaps the, uh, the Liz Warren effect on the other candidates. But then I thought on the second night, there was some real emotional appeal. Again, I wonder, as you mentioned a few moments ago about the substance behind it. But let me ask you, what was convincing among the different candidates that you saw? Was there anyone who made the case in a particularly poignant or convincing way? Because I was not sure if anybody, you said if you're already checked in on this issue, maybe you didn't learn much. I'm not sure they moved the needle even on the give a damn meter as much as I would have liked. I don't think so either. I think that if you're following the candidates closely, you know a lot more about where they are on climate change from the plans they've put out and the things that they've said previously and the proposals they have supported in the past than anything that you heard in the debates. I thought one thing that was very interesting uh, is that you had a, a few personal stories related. So Senator Harris talked about meeting firefighters who are fighting the wildfires in California. Mayor Pete Buttigieg talked about uh, some of the people that he's met in the Midwest who are suffering from flooding and farmers who are having difficulty with that and how he would sort of include them in the process of addressing climate change. And I think that's really where the conversation needs to be going to talk more about how climate change is impacting people in America. One of the things that was very disheartening for me was the way Puerto Rico was addressed, or I should say not addressed by the moderators in the debate over two nights. No questions about the tragedy that we saw, Hurricane Maria and the other uh, severe weather that we saw uh, and the the disastrous federal response. We did not hear any direct questions about that issue. And only one candidate, uh, former Secretary Julian Castro, mentioned it as part of an answer. He did talk about the question of climate change. But I was struck by the idea that you could have a 9-11 level event in terms of human casualties. And yet, a year or two later, to not have it even be a question on the debates. We talk about this in terms of lack of urgency. I could not imagine less urgency being given to this issue. Why was the, do you, Can you understand why this wasn't an issue for the moderators or wasn't a, a question for the candidates? Because it seems to me like this very much plays into the hands of the president and those uh, affiliated with him who want to ignore this issue for their own political interests. I think that this is part of the problem that uh, you typically see with climate change. We've had record years for disasters, record years for heat, 
but it, it's very difficult to count all of those things up unless you have had a situation like Puerto Rico. So I would say I was surprised also not to hear more discussion of that. Uh, and, and, and really, this is just going to be a compounding problem. We're going to see more deaths. We're going to see more illnesses from the climate crisis. And it is something that will always be difficult to discuss. So I think that that's something that Democrats in particular are going to have to figure out how to talk about through all the different elements of politics. And it seemed to me that the moderators were instead kind of going through the top issue areas that you see people say they care about when they're polled. And and those are very narrowly defined, you know, looking at uh, healthcare concerns, economic concerns, immigration concerns, all of these things are tied together uh, and climate change being one of the, the most nuanced to discuss. Yeah, I cannot imagine in a debate where greatest foreign policy threat was, according to Chuck Todd, a one-word answer that any question is going to get the granularity that it deserves. But I was particularly disheartened with the way that climate change was uh, being addressed. And I imagine you, as an environment reporter for The Guardian, Emily, uh, were also similarly disheartened. I want to ask you about two candidates in particular, one from each night, who seem to have the most airtime. I didn't Keep a stopwatch handy, but just in terms of my notes, I've got a whole yellow pad full of notes here. And the two, on the first night it was Jay Inslee. No surprise that Governor Inslee was talking the most in terms of time of possession, if this were a football game, of of climate change. And then I think Governor Hickenlooper was the one on the second night who really spent the most time directly pointing this out. Of those two, and I I don't want to discount or dismiss anyone else who had more to say about this, of those two, who was more effective? Because from my money, Inslee was much more facts and figures based. I thought Hickenlooper tried to make an emphatic appeal about what he has done on this issue in the state of Colorado where uh, he's had executive experience. But I'm... What broke through for you? Was it either of these two uh, perspectives or was it maybe something completely different? I have to say that I, I was just fascinated by uh, the last question in the second night of the debates about what would your, or one of the last questions, what would your first priority be as president? Um, and I was expecting multiple candidates to say climate change or climate change as part of other issues, climate change along with inequality or the economy. Um, but actually only it ended up being uh, Hickenlooper and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Those are probably the last two that I would have expected to list climate change as their top priority. Um, And and so Hickenlooper is a really interesting case because Colorado has taken these actions on limiting uh, the potent methane emissions that are also heating the planet in addition to carbon dioxide. Uh, But he really refused to say specifically that fighting climate change is going to mean an end to the oil and gas industry, which is very important to his state. Uh, and he, he kind of said that, you know, that industry shouldn't be demonized. There are countries outside of the U.S. that are a problem, too. And it is true that the U.S. is only a portion of emissions, but it's also the biggest historical emitter causing this problem. Uh, so, again, yes, Inslee, I would say, also spoke um, at length about climate change. He said it's essentially the main reason that that he decided to, to run for president. Uh, but he did stick a lot more to sort of his his plans and the specifics of what he would want to do and and why he thinks that this is important than walking through, I think, more of kind of the political narratives that Hickenlooper was trying to deal with. When we're looking at where this goes from here, um, expecting that this issue will continue to get some kind of play from these candidates, is there anything down the pike that you've already seen and expected? I know that 
being plugged in on this issue. You've probably been flagged on whatever has been coming from these candidates already. Is there anything we should expect? Or is this an issue that candidates are treating, as you mentioned a few moments ago, like any other kind of top or second tier issue? It's just they need to have a position on it and not much more depth beyond that. So you've seen a lot of pressure from environment and climate advocates to have a climate-specific debate. The Democratic National Committee has said that that will not happen, that they're not going to have any debates on specific issues. And you have protesters from the youth-led Sunrise Movement who have been actually watching the debates, sitting outside on the steps of DNC headquarters in D.C. asking for this. And every group has continued to call for this over the past few nights and said the answers that we've seen are not enough to inform the public on what's happening or have any legitimate conversation about how the U.S. is going to proceed, both in terms of limiting climate change and adapting to it as it is happening and protecting the poorest people. So I think you're going to see more attention as the field narrows, specifically on former Vice President Joe Biden's plan. He has gotten criticism from people who thought that, you know, he would go too easy on the oil and gas industry. And he put out a plan that is, is, you know, the overall goals are pretty on par with a lot of his competitors. He wants to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. He's endorsed the Green New Deal. But then, then what you heard him say last night didn't really line up with that. He he really bristled at the idea that maybe the Obama administration didn't do enough fast enough, that they acted on health care first when they could have acted on on climate change first. And I, I just I just didn't see him matching what he was saying and his plan for what he wanted to do. Um, And then additionally, you have Senator Sanders, who has put out comprehensive policies for how he would address climate change in the past, but uh, recently in this election cycle hasn't put anything, you know, into... Um, onto paper or online in terms of all of the different things that he would move forward with. You know, he also uh, has been a big supporter of the Green New Deal and one of the people who's helped to get the concept off the ground. But we just don't see him putting out the policy recommendations that he has like other candidates have decided that they are compelled to do. You mentioned the Green New Deal, so I have to ask, I think it was name-checked a low single-digit number of times over the past few nights, if if even more than one or two. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back now. I know it was mentioned at least once on the second night, and I'm really struggling to, to remember if it was mentioned other than that on the first night. Not at all. Um, why? Why? This is something that we've seen momentum on in the House. We've seen um, it being uh, lambasted in the Senate by the Republican majority, and yet not even a major question and not brought up by any of these candidates. Is this a topic area that has a ring of toxicity around it for, for voters? Is that the assumption? Or is it something where I imagine it's it's kind of like I was saying last night, for example, that um, some of these Supreme Court cases, I was disheartened that they weren't mentioned, but I imagine that it's somewhat too new for candidates to assume that people have a a response to, so they're not going to put it out in an answer that has to exist in a 60-second soundbite. Uh, is that where the Green New Deal falls, or is it some, or is it something that maybe has too much media attention? Where is, is it oversaturated, undersaturated? Why didn't we hear about it? Because I would imagine that as a branding concern, maybe candidates would want to ascribe to something that most people at least have heard about, even if they don't necessarily know what it is. I think a lot of people who write about climate change in the environment were expecting one of the questions at the debates might just be 
do you support the Green New Deal? And we know a lot of the candidates do. Uh, but what's complicating here is that the, the Green New Deal is is just a concept. It's a blueprint. Uh, you know, it's been put into legislation as a resolution. It has a lot of co-sponsors. It's had traction on the Hill. But it, it isn't a plan for climate change. It, it is. These are the ideas we want to consider as we move forward with an approach to preventing more climate change and protecting people from more climate change. So I think, you know, even as a reporter, it's difficult for me to describe the Green New Deal in in shorthand, even being very familiar with the policies behind it. And I typically say that it would address climate change while also attempting to address systemic inequality. Uh, That's something that's really hard to talk about in a debate. So, you know, in retrospect, I don't think it surprises me as much that they they didn't talk about it. It might be one of those things that is popular and and kind of well-known as an issue in Washington, D.C., that just has not reached the general public. Here's another issue that I was surprised we didn't hear about in the Democratic debates over this week. The situation in Oregon, where we had a walkout by state legislators They crossed the border into Idaho as part of a time-honored tradition of a walkout, Uh, one member urging uh, the governor to send uh, police that were bachelors and heavily armed to come get him. And this over what used to be a more Republican-friendly plan for cap-and-trade. And we saw Democratic legislators in Oregon who have a supermajority essentially cave to Republicans' demands, which they had already done on other issues earlier in the session, but basically saying that this is not going to move forward. Their argument being they don't have the votes, they have a supermajority, they only don't have the votes if you're allowing the hostage situation to actually demand a ransom. So my question to you is, why wasn't this brought up? This is a situation where they were. everyone wants to talk about Mitch McConnell in a, in a national debate, but when we talk about recalcitrance, when we talk about the willingness of one side versus the other to hold issues hostage. Republicans have no better uh, example and Democrats have no better example to point to than this most recent situation in Oregon. Is this one of those issues that maybe like, a, uh, I, I would say shooting, but those are so national now. There, there isn't really anything like this where you can say, um, you, you know, if it were reproductive health, they would have said this is part of a national trend. This is also part of a national trend. Republicans in the United States, the only political party on the planet that is fighting climate change in this way. And yet it's not being asked in that way. Why didn't anyone ask about this? And I know that this is not fair because you weren't one of the debate moderators. I think you would have done a better job than Chuck Todd personally, but that's that's beside the point. Uh, but it wasn't asked, and nobody even mentioned this as something that they could point to. If you're looking to say how you're going to be different than Republicans, why not point out some of the worst-behaved Republicans in the last few weeks? I think this is one of the biggest problems with the debate format in general. So we didn't hear from candidates about what will be the biggest challenge for them in fighting climate change, because if a new president comes in, okay, a Democrat could, in theory, do some things through executive action to really make a difference on the scale that science says is required. You have to have legislation. And unless you have Democrats controlling the House and the Senate, you can't pass the legislation. And even then, it would be difficult to pass something really large scale that could be expensive, um, that could be hard to explain to people, that could last a long time, that could include so many moving technical parts. 
and so you heard a lot of questions about just how would you as president overcome uh, deadlock in Congress, but you never heard the question about a specific policy like like the climate crisis, which was just baffling to me because, you know, you can put out your plans all you want and say what you would like to see all you want, but if you can't get members of Congress on board to pass legislation, you can't actually do anything about the climate crisis. And when the candidates were asked about what they would do on day one, I was surprised not to hear more people point to, for example, military action or what we could do. Not not that we're going <laughs> to declare war on the climate, although I'm sure uh, in another debate, in another time, in another dimension, that wouldn't be so out of line. In fact, I'm looking forward to that in the Republican primary in 2024. But if you were to just, for example, require the government is, what is it, how many hundreds of millions of barrels of oil a day does the Defense Department go through? I mean, just to talk about ways in which the government could change its appropriations and procurement, uh, things that the government could do, again, very quickly and potentially without some action. We didn't hear any creative things. And again, maybe now we're just we're just picking nits. Maybe we are saying that this is too much. But I was surprised to see the lack of imagination that we saw on the stage both nights about what could be done potentially without Congress, because we cannot expect there to be any movement on this issue uh, and and to have Democrats not be prepared to uh, with, with a little bit more imagination was disheartening to me. Was it to you? We know that a lot of the candidates do have proposals in their plans that uh, could be implemented with executive authority just from the president. But you just don't hear them talking about that. I think it's probably because those things aren't very sexy. That's not going to get people to the polls. That's not going to get people excited. You know that, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for one, has talked a lot, and and many of the other candidates support this, um, but about uh, banning new development of of fossil fuels on on public lands and offshore. And and that could have a a fairly big impact, depending, um, you know, looking at how many emissions are coming from from public lands themselves. So, but that's, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the, the kind of thing that Americans are looking to hear when they tune into a primetime debate from, from Miami, right? Uh, people who are really concerned about climate change probably do want to hear more uh, about sea level rise, about how you're going to respond to the crisis, about how you're going to help people, how you're going to pay for it. And and I think that's why, um, you know, we, we got the kind of questions that we did from the debate moderators the first night um, were they're fairly disappointing. You know, one was, <laughs> could you, uh, you know, would your plan, this is a, a question posed to Governor Inslee, would your plan save Miami? Um, so... There's no saving Miami. None of the presidential candidates' plans could save Miami. It's it's just far too late. They're going to see huge damage from sea level rise. Uh, they already are seeing huge damage from sea level rise. It's going to be very expensive to have any kind of city there at all. And on the first night, you also had Chuck Todd asking uh, the former, former Texas con- congressman, uh, Beto O'Rourke, how he would respond to Americans who feel like the government is telling them how to live. So I feel like there's a really big framing problem here because you're already coming in saying this is a completely politically intractable uh, issue and what are you going to do about it even though it's unsolvable, right? Like there, there's no real room for a conversation there when moderators are saying people aren't going to pay for this. And really the question should not be like how much will each individual American sacrifice to prevent climate change, this global issue. It should be what can be changed systemically for the U.S. to do part of the job in reducing emissions to com- keep the entire world from experiencing this, the worst of this crisis. But to be fair, Chuck Todd was also framing the gun question as how will you respond, uh, how will you manage confiscation? So not necessarily the most fair, um, but we, we can we can uh, criticize Mr. Todd all we want. Um, 
my last question to you, Emily, is whose plan looked good on TV of the two nights and whose plan looks good to you as someone who's been following this much more closely? So for the people who just checked in, acknowledge what they saw and respond with what you saw, but also give me the sense of peeling back the curtain with the research that you've been doing for the beat that you cover, what looks good a little further below the surface. It's hard for me, having actually seen what the candidates are proposing, to, to think about what actually looked good on air. I think for me, I was looking more for fluency, like who was able to talk about climate change as more than just an environment issue. Um, I think widely experts agree that Governor Inslee has the most comprehensive plan, the most science-based plan, um, and the most detailed plan. Uh, but a lot of other a lot of other candidates at least have you know somewhere near the the general goals that he has. Inslee wants to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2045, a little bit earlier than some of the other candidates who are aiming for for 2050. But you know he says as you know governor in Washington, he has had actual experience implementing some of these things, and he could bring that to the table as president. But then again, Inslee is, is polling you know very very low, less than a percent next to these other contenders. So. Among the, the front runners, I would say most people would, would probably think that Sanders or, or Warren have more of the, the policy chops to take on a problem like this and would like to see more information from Biden about exactly what he would do. Emily Holden, environment reporter at The Guardian. Thank you for your expertise on this, for spending some time with me and for sitting down at the table. Thank you.